Hello, this is Everwonder from the California Science Center. I'm Perry Roth Johnson. Welcome to Season 2. We are kicking off a new series on space exploration, which is particularly relevant this month. A new Mars rover named Perseverance is hurtling towards the Red Planet for its landing on February 18. And joining me along for this ride as co-host for this series is my Science Center colleague and planetary geologist, Devin Waller. There's a lot of science to unpack here, so we'll be talking to people who explore all different corners of our solar system. While we've sent quite a few rovers and other robots to Mars, we haven't sent any humans there yet. It's just too far away and dangerous right now. In the 1960s and 70s, NASA's Apollo missions famously landed astronauts on the moon. And last December, NASA announced a new class of astronauts for the Artemis team, which plans to send the first woman and the next man to explore the moon a few years from now. But if we've already been there before, do you ever wonder why we keep going back to the moon? Kelsey Young is a planetary space scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. She explains that there is still quite a lot of science we can learn on the moon to better understand our own planet. Kelsey also has the enviable job of training astronauts how to be geologists here on Earth so they can do science when they get to the moon. We had a lot of fun talking to Kelsey. I think you'll find her enthusiasm for space is pretty infectious. Check it out. Kelsey Young, you are a planetary space scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Devin Waller, my co-host at the California Science Center, uh, you're also here today. Hi, Devin. Hey, Perry. Thanks for having me on. And hi, Kelsey. Thanks for joining us. So, Kelsey, you're a planetary scientist, and you focus on the integration of science priorities into human exploration. So tell us, what does that mean, and why is that important? Well, as many people are familiar, we've actually done geology on another planetary surface back during the Apollo program. So during Apollo, we had, you know, six missions of two crew each, two crew members each, exploring the lunar surface. Uh, and what are you, what were they doing there? What were they doing on the lunar surface? Well, I'm sure a lot of you have seen pictures of people in spacesuits bouncing around the surface of the moon. Um, what they were actually doing on the lunar surface was doing geology. They were collecting samples that geologists here on Earth, you know, 50 years later are still using to answer science questions. They were making observations, exploring ground that no person had ever traveled over before. They were deploying science payloads that tell us something about lunar geology in situ or in place on, a, on the lunar surface. And now we're preparing for the Artemis program, which is going to put the first woman and the next man on the lunar surface. Uh, we're targeting the South Pole for, for the Artemis program. Uh, and the same will be true you know, during Artemis. What will the astronauts be doing? Well, they'll be doing science. They'll be collecting samples, making observations, taking photos and videos, communicating with scientists back on Earth, deploying instruments that tell you something about you know, the world around you when you're using them. And so my job at NASA is to, you know, facilitate the integration of science into that human spaceflight program. So, uh, you know, how will the astronauts do geology? What kind of tools do they need? What kind of, you know, in situ instruments do they want to use? Um, what environments can they go to here on Earth to prepare them for that lunar exploration? Uh, it's about kind of integrating two communities that, you know, while they talk a little bit, it's about, you know, forming this really cohesive community that, you know, to ensure a, a really successful, you know, Artemis program from a science perspective. Can you talk a little bit about 
more specifically how your work supports the Artemis mission to return humans to the moon and like what's interesting about the South Pole and and what is a geologist like you excited to to look at when we send astronauts there eventually? Yeah, for, for those not familiar with the Apollo program and where they landed on the moon, um, it, it would be like if you extrapolated the sort of geography and size of the moon to the Earth and dropped mm-hmm. the Apollo landing sites on the Earth, it would be like if you were an alien who visited the Earth and only visited the United States and never went yeah. anywhere else. Um, and so as a, you know, first of all, that that's a gut reaction of like, oh my gosh, like you wouldn't understand nearly enough about our planet by visiting only one continent. Uh, And as a geologist, we would miss so much about the geologic history of our planet if we only visited, you know, that small of a space. Uh, And so we have a lot left to learn about the moon. Uh, All the Apollo uh, landings were in the equatorial region, so near the equator of the moon. Um, We never went to the far side with with humans. Um, The same side of the moon always faces our planet, and all six Apollo missions were on the near side of the moon. We have not yet, you know, sent people to the far side. Um, And the pole especially, you know, has a lot of interesting science objectives and and, and geology that we can't get anywhere else on the moon. Uh, One of the reasons that makes the South Pole so exciting is volatiles, um, which, you know, have the ability to provide, you know, when when processed and extracted from the lunar surface, have the ability to be turned into rocket fuel. Um, So if you want to not have to bring enough fuel with you from Earth to get there and back, um, you could think about, you know, just putting enough fuel on the rocket to get to the moon. And then once you're at the moon, being able to do what we call in situ resource utilization to extract these, you know, really interesting volatiles from the subsurface of the moon and, and turn them into things like drinking water and rocket fuel. Um, But another science question at the South Pole that is near and dear to my heart, I did my PhD on impact cratering. So impact craters are something that are seen all across the solar system. When you look up at the moon at night, you see lots of little circles. Those are all impact craters on the lunar surface. And there's a really big one at the South Pole of the moon called the South Pole Aiken Basin. And we think it's, you know, the oldest impact crater in our solar system. And getting wow. a sample from that SPA, South Pole Aiken Basin Crater, is one of the highest priorities right now in solar system science. And the reason mm-hmm. for that is because if we can get a sample that we know is from SPA, we know is really old, one of the first things that happened in our solar system evolution and history, it can provide a timing constraint for the rest of solar system exploration. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, so South Pole Aiken Basin is, you know, where it's at, and we're hoping to be able to, you know, one of... <laughs> one of the many wonderful science objectives that we're targeting with the Artemis program. It's like your, uh, your Rosetta stone or your dead sea scrolls, but like on a cosmic scale. Yeah. And, and another, that's actually a wonderful analogy. Um, and another kind of comparable analogy that we like to say about the moon is, the moon is a witness plate for the entire inner solar system. So mm. whatever the moon experienced, Earth experienced, Mars experienced, Venus experienced. Uh, and so we can actually learn a lot about our own planet by exploring the moon. Uh, well, it's that was not really an intuitive concept to me when I first heard about it. But think about all the things we have here on Earth that make it a pleasant and wonderful place to live, like drinking water, vegetation, people, um, mm-hmm. to use an another example, plate tectonics, an atmosphere. Um, these are all things that are really important for us, um, but actually obscure the geologic record. Um, So take plate tectonics for an example. Um, We have all the time, you know, crust being destroyed, new crust being created. And, you know, while that drives a lot of the processes that we see at our planet and makes Earth what it is, it also, you know, destroys rocks and destroys the geologic record. Where we don't have plate tectonics or oceans or vegetation is the moon. And so the moon actually captures four plus billion years of solar system history that we do not have access to on our planet because it's 
long been destroyed. Um, so we can actually learn a lot about the evolution of our own planet by exploring the moon. And a lot of the science objectives that we're hoping to target with the Artemis program are seeking to, again, use the, the moon as a, as a witness plate for the rest of the solar system. Okay, that, that, that's cool. That like helps motivate, you know, we're not just going back to the moon to relive the Apollo glory days, although those were awesome. Uh, <laughs> but we're like learning new things about not only the moon, but how our Earth and, and the rest of the planets in the solar system got to where they are today. We have a lot of science left to do at the moon. <laughs> uh, so looking forward to getting going. <laughs> so along with the research that you do, you are in the process of training these astronauts to go back to the moon and understand the geology of the lunar surface that they're going to see. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, taking it, you know, back once again, there's a lot of less lessons learned from the Apollo program. And, and you know, back during Apollo, uh, the astronauts that flew to the moon, you know, we say they basically had the equivalent of a master's degree in geology because they had hundreds and hundreds of hours of geology training. And that training wow. took place in the classroom and in the field. So they went out to these analog environments, as we call them, that looked like, you know, the areas on the lunar surface where their, you know, missions were targeted to land. Uh, and they were in the classroom, just like, you know, all students are, you know, here on right. Earth, they, they learned about principles of geology uh, in, in the classroom at the Johnson Space Center. So, you know, again, flash forward 50 years to today, and, and we're still training astronauts in geology. Um, but it doesn't just start when they're assigned to a mission. Uh, it starts when they're selected as an astronaut candidate. Um, so during that initial two years of candidacy training that they, they undergo at the Johnson Space Center, you know, they receive training in just, you know, a whole host of topics, including, you know, the International Space Station, robotics, how to fly a T-38 jet. Um, they learn, you know, Russian as of now to, you know, given our partnerships with the International Space Station. Um, but they're mm -hmm. also trained in geology. Um, so myself and my colleagues from both inside NASA and across the academic community provide them with that, you know, geology and intro to science training. So again, just like Apollo, we trained them in the classroom, we trained them in the field, we trained them about, you know, fundamentals of geology, we trained them about the solar system and, you know, why NASA is interested in exploring it. Uh, we teach them how to geologic map, we teach them about the features that they observe on Earth from the International Space Station, because, of course, they spend some of their time on ISS taking pictures of the Earth. So we mm -hmm. help them understand what they're looking at and the processes that shape our own planet. Um, so we provide them with this, you know, few weeks of fundamental science training, both in the classroom and in the field during their astronaut candidacy. Um, and then, you know, flash forward to now, we're planning for the Artemis program. Uh, and we're, you know, with that, again, they'll be trained in a whole variety of topics like landing on the moon, how to operate in a spacesuit on the lunar surface, how to launch in the rocket that will take them to the moon. Um, but we will also treat, train them in geology. So right now we're planning out the classroom and the field um, curriculum that, you know, these Artemis astronauts will take after they're assigned to a mission. Man, I'm so jealous because I think like a lot of people, uh, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid and I wish I was your student right now. Uh, I just want I want you to unpack a little bit of what you said in the beginning. You, you, you briefly explained uh, about analog sites and how they're places here on Earth that kind of look like the places we want to explore in other worlds. Um, can you give a few more examples of that? Like I've heard of these these fake Mars sites on Hawaii. Like are there others that you've been to that you train your astronauts at? And, and like why are they so important for training? 
Ah, analog sites are my favorite topic to talk about, so I can talk your ear off for hours about those. Um, Absolutely. So an analog environment is, you know, a site on Earth that resembles something about another planetary surface. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, we can go to volcanoes on Earth that look like volcanoes on Mars, or we can go to an impact crater on Earth that looks like an impact crater on the moon, which is actually what I did my PhD on. Um, So really, I mean, I think the main takeaway is that there is no perfect analog. There's no place that you can go to on Earth that looks exactly like the moon, um, because of course we need to go to the moon and explore right. it. And it's a, as just by looking up at the moon at night, you can see that it's very different from our own planet. So we can't go to a place here on Earth that you know 100% mimics the conditions we'll see on the moon. But by combining work in multiple analog environments, it gets you really close to understanding the conditions that await us on the lunar surface. So um, a few examples of analog sites that you know I personally work at. Well, um, you mentioned Hawaii. Um, definitely have spent a lot of time on the Big Island of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. The style of volcanism that you see on the Big Island and, and you know in Hawaii in general really mimics a lot of the volcanic processes we see, especially on the Moon and Mars. Um, so a lot of field work that uh, myself and, and the team that I work with do is on you know the Kilauea volcano, um, for mm-hmm. example, on the Big Island, which you know has made press lately because there's been some small um, you know eruptions that have, you know, come close to where humans live on the big island. Yeah. Um, we spend a lot of time in Iceland. Um, the Apollo mm-hmm. astronauts actually trained um, quite near where we work in Iceland. And again, we see comparable processes that shape the whole solar system in Iceland. So by visiting there, um, we can really learn about, you know, volcanic processes on Mars, for example. Um, a little bit closer to home, uh, Arizona, the state of Arizona, uh, where I actually did my master's and PhD, um, is actually incredibly wonderful to provide lessons learned about other planetary surfaces. Um, the uh, Flagstaff, Arizona area is mm-hmm. an area where, you know, going all the way back to Apollo um, was really heavily used for Apollo astronaut training. And we use it now for astronaut candidacy training, as well as just, you know, understanding planetary surface processes. Um, so I could, you know, wax poetic for hours about the geology <laughs> sites of interest on Earth that tell us about other planets. But um, that's not the only type of analog environment that we can work in, right? That's Those are, those are um, really logical places to go to study, you know, planetary surface processes that shape, you know, not only the Earth, but the Moon and Mars. But to learn how to operate in space, uh, we want to combine that with operations, for example, underwater. Um, if you've seen, you know, a variety of space movies that came out of Hollywood, you've seen, you know, astronauts training in a big pool in a spacesuit. Well, um, that pool actually exists. It's called the Neutral Buoyancy Facility, the Neutral Buoyancy mm-hmm. Lab, and it's at the Johnson Space Center. Um, and it actually has, you know, a, a full-scale replica of the areas um, on the International Space Station where the astronauts, you know, conduct their extravehicular activities, what we call EVAs or spacewalks. Uh, and by operating underwater, you can simulate what it's like to work in gravity conditions that are different from the gravity conditions we have here at the surface of, of the Earth. Um, so, you know, by combining, you know, the science work in these terrestrial animals environments like Arizona, Hawaii, Iceland, with operating in environments like the MBL, the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, you know, to, to simulate lower gravity conditions, we're able to help the crew members prepare for spaceflight by showing them what geology to expect, um, but also helping them train in what it's going to feel like to be in a spacesuit on the surface of another planet. Mm-hmm. I want to stick with this underwater training bit for a second, um, because there, there's, there's, there's like a long history uh, of, of training underwater. And then there's like a cool mashup word, uh, aquastronauts, where you have aquanauts and astronauts all mashed up into one word um, from the early uh, Mercury 7 astronauts in the 1960s. Uh, 
Scott Carpenter was the first aquashonaut, right? Can can you explain like what aquashonaut means and and like why we've been doing it for so long? Absolutely. So I love that word. Um, astronaut is somebody who's flown in space, of course. Um, aquanaut, aquanaut is someone who has you know explored and lived underwater. Um, so you mentioned Scott Carpenter, who, as you said, was the the OG aquastronaut. Um, and he, you know, of course, after his experience working with NASA, um, he was able to partner with you know a, a group that did saturation diving, or you know when you actually rather than scuba diving, which you know you might be familiar with, you actually can um, let your body adjust. To living at the pressures found underneath, you know, the surface of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And you can actually, you know, stay for, you know, days and weeks at a time living underwater. Um, and so the, you know, the, the term that was coined was, you know, once you've, you know, you've saturated and, and spent a day underwater, you're an aquanaut. Um, so if you've done both, you've been to space and you've lived underwater, you are an aquastronaut of which, you know, Scott Carpenter was the first. And there have been many <laughs> since then. Classic overachiever. <laughs> All right. I want to transition from under the sea to back up above uh, on land. Yeah. So you led a team that explores lava tubes. And that, I think, is super cool. It's uh, it's a project called Tube X. And you're using LIDAR sensors and other instruments to produce like a 3D map of the tubes themselves. What's the connection between lava tube work that you do here on Earth and your planetary exploration? Yeah, so lava tubes are just a really exciting concept, and I think it's it's just fun to visualize how we might be able to use them to support exploration someday in the future. So what a lava tube is, um, is it's a sort of void space underground um, that basically formed during the emplacement of a lava flow. So during a volcanic eruption, there are a couple different processes that can form these lava tubes. It's typically just the emplacement of that lava flow. So the outside of a lava flow becomes hardened because it's exposed to the cool air relatively cool air at the Earth's surface. Um, So the outside hardens, but the inside, because it's protected from that cooler air, is able to stay molten and continues to flow. Um, So what you actually get is when all, when the, basically when the faucet turns off and the volcano stops erupting, that molten lava just drains out the bottom of the tube and leaves this void space behind. Uh, And so they can be small, like on the order of a few feet in diameter, or they can be, you know, really quite large. Um, Some missions to the moon have highlighted the potential for some of these lava tubes to be big enough to, to, you know, really be able to, if we're able to ingress them safely, you know, provide really robust support for human explorers on the surface of the moon. So they're basically like natural tunnels, right? They're exactly like natural tunnels. And how do we know they're there if it's a tunnel? (laughs) Um, Well, that's because um, you can often get what are called skylights where, you know, the roof in just one area or a couple areas collapses into the bottom of the tube, which means that you kind of get this window into the tunnel, so to speak, um, that is basically your entrance, your your, your door into that rest of that, you know, tunnel system. Mm Mm-hmm. So the TubeX project um, is a NASA-funded project um, that combines, uh, you know, I'm on the team with some NASA colleagues, uh, as well as we have some academic colleagues from the University University of South Florida and the University of Maryland. Uh, And we're actually able to, you know, develop an exploration strategy for these tubes. So it sounds great, right? Um, You know, there's dangerous radiation at the surface of the moon and Mars. There's meteorite, meteor impacts that can come and impact the lunar surface. And being able to ingress one of these tubes and, you know, spend some time 
time in there means that you're shielded from all of these potentially dangerous situations at the surface. However, um, picture being in basically your own personal spacecraft in a spacesuit, which is essentially what that is, right? And and having to in, you know drop down a hole into a tunnel <laughs> that you're not exactly sure how big this tunnel is, how deep does it go? Um, does it go you know just ten meters past the edge of the hole, or does it go you know potentially miles and miles? Um, so the TubeX project is really designed to not only just learn scientifically about how these tubes form and evolve over time, but also to say, okay, what instruments can an astronaut or a robotic explorer use at the surface without you know dropping down into the tube to map these tubes so that we can say, hey, this tube might be a good one to actually go ahead and try to ingress. Uh, and what data, what instruments can help us map that tube without you know putting putting the crew member actually down into the tunnel. Got it. And and like was LIDAR one of the the tools that you used that, that you gave to the astronauts or, or was it used for some other purpose? Yeah. Um, so we combine a series of instruments to develop this tube exploration strategy. Uh, we use um, primarily surface deployable instruments. So a ground penetrating radar, which to oversimplify it is basically like a lawnmower that you can drag over the surface and it images the subsurface as you push your lawnmower, <laughs> pull your lawnmower. Um, and so we use ground penetrating radar. We use, you know, seismic studies. We, we use gravimetry and magnetometry. These are all geophysical techniques techniques that from the surface can map what's underneath your shoes when you're walking around the surface. Um, And we use LIDAR, which is light detection and ranging, inside the tubes to provide kind of that map or the answer key to provide that calibration for what those surface deployable instruments are seeing versus what's actually there. So by getting into the tube with a LIDAR, it creates this really detailed 3D resolution, high resolution map of the interior of the tube. And then we take those data sets that we obtain from lawn mowing across the surface of the tube and say, how close did we get with these data sets? Uh, and to do that, you know, by doing that, we actually say, okay, well, these are the ideal instruments that we would take to the moon if we wanted to actually do this with astronauts. So you create this high resolution 3D map using LIDAR inside the, the lava tube. And then you go onto the surface and you use all of the, you know, handheld instruments in order to see if you can match that 3D map on the surface. So that on another planet, what you're looking at from the surface or from orbital data, you'll be able to make good predictions or accurate predictions as to what's underneath the surface based upon your research here. Is that kind of exactly right? Okay. So imagine going to an area on the moon where you had, I'm making this up just for an example, but, you know, 10 skylights into a series of lava tubes. And you're, you know, you're an astronaut, um, Devin and Perry, you're a crew on the lunar surface trying to figure out which of those 10 pits to choose to, you know, rappel down into. Uh, uh-huh. How do you pick? How do you downselect from 10 to the best candidate for, for exploration? Uh, and so by using these instruments, let's say you took your ground penetrating radar and your magnetometer around all 10 of these skylights into these tubes, and by creating the Apps that you've now know how to create by calibrating with the LIDAR data, you can pick, okay, well, this is the best candidate for exploration and this is where I want to try to explore. Where can people follow you online and find your work? Uh, yeah, so uh, if you just Google my name in NASA, you'll see the my like website on the you know NASA agency website pop up. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I'll be honest, I'm not I'm not a super prolific poster. <laughs> um, but you can <laughs> find me at Rock Doc Young if you want to see uh, posts every once in a while. <laughs> um, but awesome. you can definitely learn a lot about um, you know NASA's missions and and a lot of the work that I've mentioned today, like the astronaut training, the analog projects that we do on NASA's social media accounts, NASA and and NASA Moon, um, as well. As 
well as if you just Google any of the project I mentioned today, they'll you'll definitely see content on NASA's website. So um, stay tuned. And we do try hard to um, put out content about the field campaigns that we do and the work that we're doing. And as we press toward the Artemis program, we will definitely be communicating with the public about it. You can be sure about that. So um, definitely stay tuned to kind of all those sources that I mentioned, and, and you'll definitely see some some really exciting content about the work that we're doing. Well, Kelsey, thanks for joining us on the show and, and sharing with us how we do science in other worlds. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I honestly could talk about this all day. I've tried to rein myself in today, but really happy to, to have you guys have me here today and, and looking forward to more conversations in the future. Thanks, Kelsey. It's been great. That's our show, and thanks for listening. Until next time, keep wondering. Ever Wonder from the California Science Center is produced by me, Perry Roth Johnson, along with Jennifer Castillo. Liz Roth Johnson is our editor. Theme music provided by Michael Nicholas and Pond 5. Special thanks to Devin Waller for producing and hosting this series. We'll drop new episodes every other Wednesday. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review or tell a friend about us. Now, our doors may be closed, but our mission to inspire science learning in everyone continues. We're working hard to provide free educational resources online while maintaining essential operations like on-site animal care and preparing for our reopening to the public. Join our mission by making a gift at californiasciencecenter.org support.